0: Today, I'm really honored to have a very special guest, Dr. Shiloh, from the LA Not So Confidential podcast. We had been messaging back and forth, and when Dr. Shiloh offered to lend her opinion on the Richard Adderson case, I jumped at the opportunity. Not only did she bring her expertise in forensic psychology, but she was also a police officer, and that, not surprisingly, piqued my interest, and I knew that we'd have a lot to talk about. So thank you all for joining us this episode. We do have a lot to talk about.
1: From the outskirts of New York City,
2: Slim Turkey is pseudonymously hosted by Lee Purchase with the
0: occasional cluck from the Yonkers love chicken himself, Mr. Slim Turkey. Dr. Shiloh? I want to begin by thanking you for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining me today. I listen to your podcast, and I'm a big fan.
2: You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be joining you on Slim Turkey.
0: I have to ask, how did you find the Slim Turkey podcast?
2: Sure. So as you mentioned, I have a podcast as well that I co-host with a Another forensic psychologist, uh, Dr. Scott, he and I are both forensic psychologists in the Los Angeles area, and true crime has always been a passion of mine, and I stumbled upon your podcast as a fan of the Missing Maura Murray podcast, and I heard you on there talking about Slim Turkey, really intrigued me for a couple of reasons, and I tuned in right away and binged everything on my long commute to downtown Los Angeles in a couple of days. So um, I work in downtown LA. I'm a police psychologist for a large law enforcement agency uh, down there, but my background is a bit diversified in that for the 10 years prior to 2017, I worked with violent offenders getting out of prison. So that, that's how I'm trained as a forensic psychologist. And prior to that, I was a police officer for seven years here in the Southern California area. So obviously your twist on looking at a cold case where the suspect may potentially be a police officer as well as you being a police officer yourself was hugely intriguing to me, and that's when I reached out and said that I was really enjoying what I was hearing so far.
0: That's incredible. Your background is so diverse. In what capacity are you working as a forensic psychology within your agency?
2: So my job is, is sort of threefold, and I that's what I love the most about it. I, I've only been doing it about two years, and I think it's the best-kept secret in psychology. Um I do therapeutic clinical services with police officers and civilians of the department. So I do therapy. I do individual therapy. I do couples therapy. I see um, spouses and significant others of department employees for all sorts of reasons. They can just come in on their own, or maybe it's a situation in which they've been involved in a shooting or another critical incident, and they would come in and receive therapy services or debriefings from the psychologists. Um, I also am a consultant to a number of divisions within the department. So essentially, I'm their industrial organizational psychologist. So if they have issues going on that need to be addressed, I can tailor trainings or you know maybe just appear at some roll calls and give them their mental wellness tip of the day before they go out into the field. You know, I might talk about sleep hygiene or relationship skills or resilience. Um, So I'm just kind of there as a liaison and, you know, walk around the halls, go to roll calls, let people get to know me so they feel comfortable with a psychologist. And then lastly, we are all trained as crisis negotiators, and we are part of the crisis negotiation team. So whenever our SWAT team rolls out to a barricaded suspect or a suicidal subject type situation, a psychologist always goes as well. So we're not on the phone negotiating with anyone, but we're sort of in the background giving our expertise on the person's behavior or possibly, you know, what their mental health conditions are so the negotiators can better tailor some of the negotiations for a peaceful outcome. So as you can imagine, in a large area like L.A., we are, we are quite busy as are our law enforcement officers.
0: That's exciting, especially with your background in law enforcement. It seems like the perfect job. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's really come full circle for me. Um, you know, I was in grad school while I was a police officer, and I worked a lot of patrol. I worked a lot of weekends so I could go to school during the week. And I, you know, I think a lot of my peers thought, "Oh, do you want to be in police psychology?" And I thought, "Heck no, I don't want to do that. I work with those people all the time." <laughs> and so I actually I went into a different direction and was working with offenders, which I loved. Um, you know, I thought it was, I I think human behavior is fascinating. And then you layer on top of that criminal behavior. And then I specialized in offenders who commit sexual offenses. So you layer on top of that sexual offending. And that was kind of the really interesting sweet spot for me. So that's why I did that for so long. But, you know, after 10 years, it was definitely time for a change that, that you can only do that for so long. Um, And it's really wonderful being able to support and work with the good guys again.
0: So it's great. I'm curious, what's the reaction from the rank and file when you're addressing roll calls? And the reason I ask is because my department has nothing that compares to anything like you. And so I'm picturing my department, I'm sure the vast majority would be receptive, but there's always going to be cops who are resistant, like Riggs from Lethal Weapon
2: sure so it, there's still a stigma about mental health and having psychologists around even though it's getting much better you know i hear stories from my colleagues from 15 20 years ago and some of them were literally chased out of roll calls <laughs> and um it's a tough crowd it really is a tough crowd and it's it's the tide is turning i think the more that we make ourselves visible and approachable and let them get to know us it you know it's same as is you know how law enforcement agencies are trying to humanize the badge with the community and as psychologists we try to humanize ourselves to the police officers and I am the first psychologist at my agency that has a law enforcement background so it, it is unique and I've seen it really hit home with people I've done trainings, you know, to 300 people and officers. And I've had people come up to me afterwards, if I mention my background, and I've literally had someone say, you know, I wasn't listening to a word you were saying until you said you are a cop. And then I realized, oh, she gets it. And I listened to everything you said afterwards. So there is there is a certain buy in that comes with it that I think other psychologists have to work harder at. Um, But at the same time, everyone's experiences are so unique if i i was involved in two officer involved shootings when i was a cop you know i can relate to a certain extent to other officers shootings but everyone is so different and i have to be really mindful of still valuing their own experience and not trying to compare it to myself too much. So I think that's where I work on um, just keeping my boundaries and my uh, psychological ethics in check is is being able to relate, but also not crossing any of
0: those boundaries too much. I'm only thinking about my department, but as you know, there's still a stigma attached to any mental illness. But I would think the fact that a former cop— could come into a department bringing your background and shared experience that gives you legitimacy immediately.
2: Sure, sure, yeah, it's 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 definitely a plus, and people have been very receptive to it in the two years that I've been there. So, you know, I wasn't quite sure how it was going to track with them, but it's I've had only good feedback and. Um, I think it just helps me, even if I'm not talking about it out loud. It helps me relate to clients and what they're going through in all sorts of all sorts of scenarios, whether it's relationships or you know some sort of critical incident. So it's absolutely helpful, and I'm enjoying the heck out of myself. I love being able to support the officers that I work with.
0: That sounds great. You found your calling.
2: I did. <laughs> I think so. I I'm been very, um, honored to have a couple callings in life. I feel like I've had, you know, like I'm on my third career and I should be like a hundred years old or something by now, but (laughs) I'm not, thank God. And, um, I'm just getting to do all of this fun stuff. That's super interesting. And, you know, I think the podcast is a good creative outlet to sort of talk about that and bring, to people, you know, the realities of forensic psychology and true crime that isn't a glamorous television show. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what we wrap our minds around here in L.A. and Hollywood. So it, it's a merging of sort of the reality, but with still some of the fun elements of entertainment. How did you get into podcasting? You know, my co-host and I met at our internship for graduate school, and we clicked, and we have been best friends ever since. Um, We actually met in LA working with sex offenders, and after graduation, I kept doing that. He went to go work at a prison, uh, but we stayed really close, and then just strangely, 10 years later, our jobs have, uh, we, in a weird way, we don't have the same employer, but we work through contracts, if you will, with the same employer. So I see him all the time, and we've been able to reconnect and spend a little bit more time together. But we're also best friends. So it was like, hey, we're kind of fun, and people like to hear the stuff we talk about and the stuff we do. We should have a podcast. So we just did it. We just started it. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. um, But just made it work and it's been really great so far so we've been doing it about 18 months now it's so much fun I wish I could put more time and effort into it but you know we we have our our real jobs and we both have private practices on the side and families so we we give our listeners what we can give them and You know, just like you, we we kinda churn out something every two or three weeks and that seems to be good for us. So we don't wanna we don't wanna burn out, you know. Sure. We just released an episode on the trials and case of Amanda Knox and you know, it it's one of those that um I feel like was important to do because it spanned eight years from the murder of Meredith Kircher to Amanda and her co-defendant being fully exonerated. And I feel like some people just really are like, whatever happened with that? And it was such an injustice of the Italian justice system. And we're pretty savvy now here, at least in the United States, on coerced confessions and you know innocent people being put behind bars that this felt like it was, it's an old case, but it's still relevant to talk about today. So.
0: Absolutely. I just listened to it this morning, driving into work. It's a great episode. great.
2: Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate the support. I love your podcast. I, as I reached out to you, I said, I thought it was really smart and just quirky enough to really like be different. And I, I love that. I, I have a few thoughts about some of the episodes if, if you don't mind getting into that.
0: Absolutely. That's why I wanted to speak with you.
2: Okay. So, um, you know, this is coming from, not really like my podcast hat or my police officer hat or psychologist hat. More as as just sort of a fan and a a critical thinker. And I think a lot of your listeners are probably in that same boat. So hopefully, I'm kind of the voice to to ask some of these questions. But you know, from episode one, I what stood out to me is that he was on the line um, for nine minutes and. As you and I both know, that's an incredibly long time to be on the line with 911, especially when you're a victim and in a life or death situation. Um, so my thought with Mr. Adderson was, you know, how long did it take for emergency services to actually get to him? And I don't know what's normal for that area, um, but... You know, was there any, any further statements made to emergency personnel? It's just it, it's a long time, I thought. And maybe you could fill in some of those gaps if you know.
0: Sure. So there are local police departments in the area. But because the New York State Police have yet to release the police report, I don't know whether the local police responded. But according to one article, the first responding officer arrived in approximately 10 minutes. Now, I don't know how long it took the operator to process the 911 call and ultimately dispatch it. I know my department, there's always a slight lag between the 911 operator receiving the call and the police dispatcher assigning it. Richard was able to stay on the phone for nine minutes, so I think it's safe to say that he remained on the line until the first responding officer or the ambulance arrived on the scene.
2: Sure, which is common, right? 911 would say, okay, the officer's there. You can hang up with me now if he's even that responsive.
0: Right. And in the portion of the 911 call that was released, Richard sounds clear, coherent, albeit panicked, as he's just been shot in the chest. But the New York State Police haven't released much information since 1997 and 1998. So a lot of it is unknown.
2: Sure. And so uh, did he. Do we know, I guess is a better way to phrase it, if he lost consciousness at any point, And did he pass away on the way to the hospital?
0: Yes. I have read at least two accounts that reported Richard did pass away en route to the hospital. So he was the assistant superintendent of the Valley Central School District in Orange County, New York, which is across the Newburgh Beacon Bridge. The bridge separates Orange and Dutchess counties, and he had already crossed over into Dutchess County where he lived when he was shot. He was then transported back into Orange County where he died.
2: I see. Well, it would be interesting to know if if there were any additional statements made by him that are helpful. Of course, that's going to be in records that haven't been released, but even if the ambulance emergency responders or EMTs um, noted any of that while they were working on him. I think that, just like the rest of the 911 call would be super helpful, that information would be
0: as well. Absolutely. And I would love to know if the responding officer jumped into the ambulance and escorted Richard to the hospital in the hope that he could get a little more information about the killer. But that information was never released.
2: Right. Right. Well, I, I think that's that's just a mystery that's wrapped up in records that, that aren't being shared at this point. So maybe that will come out at some point.
0: I really hope so, because I think releasing more information at this point would help. It's been 22 years now, so I don't see the harm in doing so. I think it would benefit the investigation.
2: Yeah, I, I think the trend is that law enforcement agencies are starting to realize that Media can be a friend and not a foe in helping get some information to come out that would be helpful to the investigation. And honestly, you know, I hope that's what your podcast does is at least put enough attention on it to where they don't dig their heels in and say, no, we're never going to release this, but say, you know what? Okay, we realize this could have some widespread attention and that might be to our benefit. So I, I I really hope
0: that's what comes out of this. I do, too. That was my initial intention, and it remains my intention today. I would love for a listener who knows something about the homicide to either call the New York or New Hampshire State Police and help to point them in the right direction.
2: Right, right. Well, so in regards to episode three, this is where you really focused on road rage and As a psychologist, I thought this was very interesting um, because I started immediately thinking, okay, who is a person that suffers from road rage and what is that person like in the rest of their life? Because, you know, so often we talk about with someone who has committed a very serious offense like murder, what do they act like afterwards if they're trying to not let anyone know that this is what they did, or if they're trying to act normal, if you will. And so that kind of got my wheels turning a little bit. So I just, just wanted to touch on road rage for a second. Um, and when psychologists look at road rage, it, usually that person is dealing with an anger management issue that is beyond just being on the road. You know, it's, it's going to be when it's gotten to the level where they are getting so worked up and so emotionally hijacked, that's probably happening whenever they get stressed out in other areas as well. So I would expect that if this scenario is a result of road rage and the impulsive decision of the suspect to then... Continue the argument on the side of the road and eventually pull out a gun and shoot Richard. That this person generally has some anger management issues in other areas of his life. So that probably means that they act out. You know, it might not necessarily be violently, but you're going to see some behavioral acting out in their relationships, in their place of work whenever they feel like they've been wronged, because that's usually what road rage is also about, Um, or just when things don't go their way and they are too stressed and they don't have the coping skills to be able to handle it. So if we're kind of looking at an emotional or behavioral profile of somebody who has road rage and committed this crime, that's what I would expect the people in their life to see after that is... Well, probably before and after, but just someone who's not good at regulating their emotions overall and probably has some impulsive behavior associated with that. So, you know, that could be other violent stuff like getting in fights um, or throwing things or stomping off down the hallway, just above and beyond what someone would be able to deal with if they were emotionally charged up. So I just wanted to offer my two cents there. I don't know if if this is a case of road rage, but I know you spent some time looking at road rage as well and some studies on that.
0: I did. The New York State Police originally attributed this to a case of road rage, and I don't believe that they've ever revised that theory. What was interesting to me are all the associated research and studies into road rage I remember reading one in particular that contended road rage contained within a car borders on normal behavior. It's only when the rage extends outside the car, much like you said, is it considered aberrant.
2: Right, right. Yeah, it's and it's also about how quickly is that person able to sort of de-escalate the situation within themselves, you know, de-escalate their own emotions, if you will, and calm down and say things like, oh, it's not worth it. I'm not going to teach them a lesson anyway. I don't want to get hurt. What if that, you know, the, the thing here in LA is like, well, you don't really screw with someone during road rage because what if they have a gun? And that's kind of, you know, that could be what happened in this situation. Right. So it's it, it's sort of, it, it's that normal process of weighing benefits and consequences is this worth getting into it with someone when i have no idea what they're coming to the table with so it's most people do go through that process you get cut off in traffic and we are trust me we are all incredibly stressed here in los angeles with our traffic situation yeah. and multiple times a day you are you're absolutely faced with these situations but I think most people are able to calm themselves down, realize that it's happening, and it's not worth it. The person who has an anger management issue is not going to think all of that through and is going to act impulsively. So it is. It's, it's a very interesting phenomenon that has just come up in psychology in the last couple of decades um, because, as you pointed out in your episode of the different instances and During the period of time when Richard was killed, there wasn't really anything like that happening in his, you know, where this crime happened. But it doesn't mean it wasn't the first. So can't rule it out
0: either. No, exactly. But there comes a point where you're involved in an incident on the road and you have to let it go. You can't carry that anger, especially if you become involved in a traffic accident and now you're forced to deal with someone face to face. You have to remain cool, but I'm guessing that it's only a relatively small percentage of people who ever cross that line and resort to violence, if it was, in fact, a road rage incident anyway. And I've always believed that if a person acts a certain way behind the wheel, then they probably act that way in other stressful circumstances as well.
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. I think so, too. So I, when, again, we're looking at potential suspects and the people closest to them, that's probably how they would describe that person is is having issues and managing anger and maybe acting at least impulsively, if not acting out violently from time to time. Right. Yeah. So the other, I'm sorry, the other thing that stuck out to me was in episode four, when you talked about the investigators from New York basically landing in New Hampshire, and that that created some interest in, oh, the suspect must be from New Hampshire. So, uh, my my questions left after that episode were: Do we know who they interviewed? Do we know what area in which they investigated or who they contacted? And I don't know if this has anything to do with the law firm or if it was, you know, other persons of interest that they were talking about. But other than then just being there, is there information about what they were doing there?
0: No, there's been very little information released, not only by the New York State Police, but by the New Hampshire State Police as well. The New York State Police had arrived in New Hampshire two months before they were ever tipped off that the original suspect had enlisted the services of that Manchester law firm. And they arrived in Manchester in February 1997, five days after Richard had been shot and killed. But again, because police have released very little information, we don't know why they rushed up to New Hampshire and chose Manchester of all places. But they chose Manchester... And I've always suspected that they had a partial plate number.
2: Yeah, the only thing I can think of is is the license plate issue, if if that's part of their investigation. But um, yeah, Manchester seems pretty pinpointed as a place to be rather than casting a wider net.
0: Yeah. Manchester is not the capital of New Hampshire. Concord is. Manchester is a smaller city of about 100,000 people, more or less. That's where they landed to conduct their initial investigation, and that extended for about a week. And that's all the New York State Police released.
2: Well, just more questions than answers, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's how this whole investigation has progressed. When releasing information to the public, there have definitely been a lot more questions than answers. And when the New York State Police headed up to Manchester again in April of 1997, They were aware of an individual who had retained the services of the law firm. The New York State Police attempted to pressure the firm to release information concerning its client, but when the firm stood its ground, the police scrambled to find ways to gain more information about the mystery client.
2: Yep, it's pretty frustrating. (laughs) Obviously, you know, we, we can feel that passion in you and trying to conjure up some more information. But I think as listeners, you know, it's it's incredibly frustrating for us, too, because we start to really bite into this and really feel for his family. And, and you're really giving, um, you know, some background in humanizing the person rather than just a cold case. And it's just frustrating all the way around, which makes it a really sad situation. So thanks for bringing attention to it. But we'll see how it goes
0: yeah I believe the case is still solvable. Richard Adderson described his killer as between forty and fifty years old, so if he's alive today, he's in his sixties or seventies. Any witnesses and confidants are also likely to still be around. But if the case goes another twenty years without any resolution, you begin to lose potential sources of information so I believe the New York State Police still have a legitimate chance of solving this case.
2: Yeah, I, I think so, too. I totally agree with you. But it does sort of have this feeling of of now or never to it. And I hope at some point they realize that and start releasing more helpful information. Of course, nothing that would compromise the case, but but some something, because it's not working with what they're releasing at this point, the minimal amount. So... Um, yeah, we it's it's really pertinent at this time to take advantage of of the people around the suspect who knew them at that time and can can come up with this information because you're right it 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 really lies on someone coming forth because the suspect certainly you know isn't going to have a change of heart in the eleventh hour and um, come forward himself and we've seen that time after time especially with. All these cases that are being solved by DNA, you know, these 70-year-old men are getting knocks on the door and getting hauled off to jail. So,
0: Well, that's the encouraging part for me, that cases like the Golden State Killer have been solved after 30 to 40 years. That makes me hopeful that Richard's case will one day be solved as well.
2: Definitely. Definitely.
0: Well, yeah. So, Dr. Shiloh, when I learned that you were a psychologist... I was excited to ask you about the feelings of guilt and how that could relate to the Adderson case, how guilt may manifest itself in not only the killer, but in others who may know about the crime.
2: I think it's a really interesting point. And narrowing down guilt specifically for someone who has done something so terrible and heinous and definitive as murder is really hard to research as you can imagine. You know, there's there's very little out there that addresses specifically how somebody feels and what guilt looks like when they've committed murder. And you can just imagine it's it's hard to research that population. So what we've been able the closest we've been able to get in large enough quantities to where we can study people is really when people have killed other people in like during legal type situations like war, if you will, or maybe someone who's had to do it in self-defense. So veteran combat veterans who come back from war and who have had to kill people in the line of that duty, we've been able to to see and talk to and study, if you will, um, to see what goes on with them. And that that's sort of the closest we can get, but I think it gives us a lot of valuable information um, because there's kind of two things here, and, and we'll talk about it with guilty people and and how keeping a secret affects someone. But either you have someone where the guilt affects them because guilt, Guilt is an emotion, right? There, people feel guilt because they're convinced that they've caused harm to someone else. Now, there are a small population of people who don't feel those things. If we're talking about legitimate psychopaths, so we don't know where this suspect falls in this case. <laughs> but if if it's a psychopath and he doesn't feel guilt, then that's not helpful to us for us to talk about. But If he's someone who felt guilt or remorse afterwards, I think that's important to dive into. So when we study people who have killed people, um, I think the biology is really interesting. And basically there's two areas of the brain that light up when they talk about the how they feel in relation to taking someone else's life. And one of those areas is called the orbital frontal cortex. And that's essentially responsible for your moral sensitivity, your moral judgments, how to behave, things like that. And then there's another sort of secondary area that lights up called the temporal parietal junction, where that's where we kind of weigh responsibility for doing something deliberately and taking responsibility for it. So the, the orbital frontal cortex is when lights up when you would tell yourself, I feel guilty, whereas the temporal parietal junction lights up when your brain is saying, you should feel guilty for what you did. So these are the two areas we really pinpoint when we're studying individual's and when we're studying guilt and both of those areas light up for individuals who have killed other people. So that's what we expect to see. Now we can't hook everyone up, right? And see, do a brain scan. So we have to look as, you know, a psychologist as what they might be feeling and how that manifests into their behavior. Cause that's what people are going to be able to see on the outside. So when people feel guilt about something they've done, they tend to report that they feel tension and remorse and regret. And usually they are drawn towards some sort of reparative action. So that's, that's really hard to keep from doing for people. There's sort of this internal conflict. So if you've done something you feel guilty for, whether it's telling a white lie to your mom or it's murdering someone. It doesn't feel right to you. It it, it feels um, unsettling on the inside. And for something that's like a little white lie, maybe we just sort of justify it or rationalize it as, oh, well, my mom's better off not knowing. It would, you know, cause her a little bit of duress or stress if I told her. So it's just better. You know, our mind is really good at rationalizing and justifying our behavior when we're not okay with it. With something more serious like murder. People, This is obviously going to weigh more heavily on them, and so that's when you see this sort of reparative action possibly being done. So that could be thing like full-on confessing for some people, um, or it could be apologizing or some sort of pseudo-remorse being shown for other things. So they're trying to to get it out, to vent it. But they know they can't say that because the consequences are so high. So they might be over-apologetic for other things in their life. But that's really the hallmark of guilt is when people have this reparative call to action. So, you know, again, just to, to sum up guilt, it's really hard to look at it when it comes to murder. But um, I, I think that's just an overall view of, of how people feel and maybe what that would look like on the outside as far as behavior.
0: What if the killer was able to justify shooting Richard? Would there be that same level of guilt?
2: Yes. And how that works is that if he's able to justify it by saying that – essentially saying he was justified in committing the act, if he is feeling the guilt – and let's just say he's – normally he's a law-abiding citizen, right? So your average person – Um, except he went to this extent but felt that it was self-defense or what have you. Yes, that guilt is going to be there and he would then have no problem coming forward and saying, here's why I did it. I felt in fear for my life. Um, You know, whatever the issue is. or He can really plead his case because really it's the other guy doesn't get to say anything at this point. So it's all his story. Now, What you're also describing is what I saw time and time again when I worked with offenders. They get so good at using what we call cognitive distortions, these rationalizations and justifications over and over and over again to essentially their brain is saying, you've done some really bad things. Here, we need to level that out and feel good about ourselves again. So they get into these patterns of using cognitive distortions to justify their behavior. So I would expect if he could do that and remain anonymous, he's probably engaged. (coughs) Excuse me.
0: I assume that anyone other than a true psychopath has to compartmentalize the incident in order to live with it.
2: That's what I saw with a lot of the violent sex offenders that I was treating because you know, usually this wasn't just a one and done thing. I mean, they've done this several times even before they get caught. So there is a a cognitive distortion and error thinking pattern that they're getting into where they do, they're able to rationalize the hell out of it. And, it, you know, there's lots of different ways they can do that and, and many names that we have for it. But absolutely, I mean, compartmentalization is, you know, kind of fits there in between a cognitive distortion and a defense mechanism. I mean, we see it in police work all the time, right? You get, you have to compartmentalize all the bad things you see all day long and go home and still, you know, be a good dad or be a good mom and not think about that stuff. So, yeah, our, our brain is really good at pushing down the disturbing things to keep us functioning as human beings.
0: That actually ties into my next question. How does keeping a secret weigh on a person?
2: So, keeping secrets requires a lot of utilization of emotional and cognitive resources. So this is this is going to depend on the of course the seriousness of the secret or the potential consequences if it's revealed, you know, that might be magnified So you can imagine with something like murder and trying to keep that a secret that we would see this person being pretty fatigued emotionally from trying to keep that secret. So there's sort of two things that happen with keeping secrets, and that's cognitive fatigue and isolation. So the cognitive fatigue is more of what's going on on the inside for this person, and it's not so much holding the secret, but it comes from experiencing these intrusive thoughts that are constantly coming up about the secret and trying to get rid of those. So, you know, we we can't control what emotions we feel, and it's really hard to control our thoughts without a lot of practice. So this person, you can imagine, is constantly struggling to try and get rid of these automatic thoughts that are popping up, either replaying the event or trying to figure out how to not get caught. And you can if if those are the things you're thinking, it's got to be written all over your face. So they are trying to push that down especially when they're interacting with other people. And so this cognitive fatigue can really lead to high levels of anxiety and we also see it see it leak out in these inadvertent slips where they might say something about the incident now it could be very peripheral but something is going to leak out at some point where they talk about it or where they were that night or something and it's kind of the old adage of you know trying to keep a, a lie a secret, you you might have to keep building on that lie because you probably had to lie about where you were, what you were doing, or why you didn't get home on time. And or, you know, why you decided to keep your Jeep hidden inside your garage for a month. <laughs> you know, who knows? But it, it's very, very anxiety provoking. Um, so that's the the cognitive fatigue the isolation is the other part that I think is very behavioral and important for those people around a potential suspect to know because they're the ones that would pick up on this. So, people who are keeping a secret tend to isolate themselves from other people because there's this there's this concept going on inside of them called motivational conflict. And What they're doing is they're trying to avoid the social consequences of the secret coming out. But as human beings, we're social animals. So we have this draw towards other people, but then we say to ourselves, we can't be around other people because then it's going to be written on our face that we're keeping this horrible secret or we might say something. And so the best thing to do is then just stay away from other people. So... That's when the distinct behavior of isolation happens. It's just easier to stay away than make sure I have my lies in order or keep my mouth shut. And so that's what I would imagine happen with this suspect and the people in his life is that he will re- really, they would describe him as withdrawing a lot and having a lot of anxiety just from the the mental gymnastics you have to do to keep this secret Um, other behaviors would be just overall kind of nervousness, um, some superficial explanations, maybe efforts to redirect the conversation. If it starts to go around things that have to do with the secret that's being kept, a lot of it's verbal, um, not necessarily behavioral, unless we're talking about anxiety symptoms, um, which could be problems, sleeping problems with eating, Um, Nervous habits like pacing or biting your nails, uh, things like that, and just, just having an irritable mood. But secrets, I think, are really interesting. And in my work with offenders, I always encourage them to come clean with everything because secrets hold a lot of power over people. And as hurtful and shameful as it is to talk about a secret... Once you've talked about it, the person feels better. But it's so hard to get over that hump and to trust that it's going to feel better once you do. So it's it's a very, very strong emotion. Shame and judgment are really,
0: really strong. That seems to be in the very early stages of keeping a secret. But how does that play out over the course of time when someone may have successfully hidden his or her secret – and are those characteristics just as prominent, say, 22 years down the road?
2: No, they're not going to be as strong. They're they're going to dissipate with time and with the reinforcement. It, it's all about behavior and reinforcement. And if you've gone a certain amount of time without being caught... You're going to get a little bit more laxed. It's it, it's human nature to, to always stabilize and go back to normal. So people desperately want to go back to that. So when a, a certain amount of years has passed and there's no heat being brought and they can you know, maybe go out and drive around town in their Jeep now and blend in with the rest and they do it that first time and nothing bad happens – then okay, you know, I, I'm good. I can now go to the grocery store. I can now be out and about a little bit more, or I can start hanging out with my family and talking to them more because they're not asking about where I was that night. Yeah, there, there's definitely distance and time is going to make someone feel more comfortable. It's always going to be in the back of their head. And I think we're seeing, again, like kind of coming back to the advances in technology and DNA, I think there's a lot of people that were living the good life for a long time and were feeling pretty comfortable and confident that they were going to die with their secret. But I bet you there's a lot of really scared people out there right now thinking, oh, crap, I never thought DNA would be a thing that would catch me. And... I, I think it's changing. You know, there's just there's a lot of advances, even if it's just podcasts and people getting information out who thought that true crime podcasts would be the phenomenon that they are and that they actually are solving cold cases. So, you know, if whether or not they have the wherewithal to even be aware of that, I don't know. But I think overall, there are people that have have laid low, lived quote unquote normal lives for a while, and now they're probably their anxiety might be going back up.
0: So it's human nature to revert back to normalcy. But you just raised an interesting point that I hadn't thought of. With the advances in technology, someone who may have thought he had gotten away with murder for the past twenty-two years could learn that investigators may now make use of something like touch DNA or or something similar to that. I'm guessing all of those feelings come rushing back if he believes there's a possibility that he'll be found out.
2: Yeah, I I think if they have a real good grasp on the fact that this may come up, and it's happening so randomly. You know, there's a case like every day in the news of someone submitted their family DNA and now their cousin is being arrested for this murder or this rape. And the more that that happens, the more nervous... Offenders on cold cases are going to become. You know, I don't doubt if it, you know, that weighs so heavily on people and they can't imagine the consequence of being arrested, going through a trial, and going through prison for the rest of their life. They have to weigh that now. Do I just lay low and see if it happens to me and live in anxiety again? That might be too overwhelming for some people. So we might see people who are suspects in cold cases starting to die by suicide or who knows, you know, I don't know if they're going to get up and flee, but when people are are, are facing really dire consequences, it, they become panicked. So I think it would be important for the people around them to sort of say, why why is this person all of a sudden suffering from high anxiety and there's no stressors in their life. So it's it's interesting. I, I just I wonder often what's going through the minds of all those people out there who haven't been caught yet.
0: Yeah, you actually hear about a number of cases being solved after 20 and 30 years because of advances in DNA. Someone who could have been on the up and up for years and then gets convicted of one felony where he has to give his DNA and then that's it. He's tied to three crimes that he committed 20 years ago. Absolutely. It's really fascinating. I want to ask you your opinion, if I may. How do you feel about police using consumer genealogy websites to identify suspects through familial DNA?
2: I... I'm all for it. I think, you know, we still have the free will to submit our DNA to one of those. And if people are doing it and they understand that it may be used for legal reasons, which most, um, uh, I don't know, companies who collect DNA have some sort of disclaimer saying that if that goes into that system, um, then you know, the more information, the merrier. I, I was at a training last year with the FBI FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, and they had people come in and talk about DNA, and it is absolutely mind-boggling what they can do with DNA these days. And I, I, I might have even said this to Dr. Scott, my co-host, that there should be a lot of scared people out there. I mean, whether it's identifying a suspect or identifying an unknown victim that we haven't known who was who this person was I mean they can take DNA now and get a computerized computerized generated picture of what that person looked like so you don't even need their whole body you just need DNA and then we can say what this this missing person or the suspect look like. I mean, it's, you know, those are very expensive tools and not every law enforcement agency can throw all their cold cases, you know, throw all that money at those cold cases. But in rare instances, I mean, if they can pick a couple, th- there's just amazing, amazing advances. And I, it, I'm super excited for it when it comes to the criminal justice system. So like I said, these, these people don't deserve to get away with this stuff and live their whole lives and go start new lives and new families and just, you know, right off into the sunset. I am thrilled when, you know, like this situation with the Golden State killer, I'm so glad he was still alive to be
0: arrested. It's an unbelievable case. Who would have thought not 10 years ago that police would have been able to track a killer through familial DNA in a consumer database? It's like you said, it's mind boggling. This technology is truly incredible, and I'm sure there are quite a few people shaking in their boots right now because they know that the technology exists to implicate them in a crime that they had thought that they had gotten away with.
2: Absolutely, as they should be.
0: A couple of years ago, I got my dad a 23andMe DNA test, and the second he sent it out, I thought to myself that I could never commit a serious crime because police would be able to narrow the pool of suspects right to me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I did the same thing for my stepdad. And I don't know if I had those thoughts at the time, um, but it was before kind of all of this was happening. But those, those are very real questions. But hey, if it keeps people from committing crimes, I'm good for the, uh, the uh, deterrent piece of it, too.
0: Well, the police have to evolve just like criminals do agreed So the last topic that I'd like to discuss is your take on the Richard Adderson case. Do you have any feelings about whether this was truly a case of road rage?
2: Sure I I think my theory comes from a few different areas. I it's kind of a mishmash of my anecdotal experience, which you know doesn't say much doesn't hold a lot of weight um, but also research. And then probably a little dash of just gut feeling with what we know now, obviously with additional information that can all change on a dime, but it's one of two camps. Either this was a personalized murder or it was a completely random road rage, just happenstance murder. And we know that the latter is more rare. So more people are killed by people that they know or, well, more people than they know. I should just put a period after that. However, or that have, you know, some sort of conflict or beef with each other. And I actually kind of lean more in that camp that this wasn't an accidental sideswipe or, you know, fender bender, and then turned into a road rage. I think whoever the suspect was, was doing this on purpose, that sideswiped him or initiated a little fender bender to get him to the side of the road to actually confront him on something. Um, Whether or not it was pre, you know, full on premeditated murder, I don't know. But I think it was either the a result of something personal, a love triangle, um, owing somebody money, um, you know, some sort of, I don't know, other felonious activity, or having to do with Mr. Adderson's job. Now, I don't know exactly what all of his duties were as a school superintendent, but I can imagine in a position of power like that, that you piss off some people just by chance of your decision-making. And that could have really, you know, he could have inadvertently pissed off the wrong person that he had no clue. And the fact that he's coming home from work, I think it's easy for that person to be able to follow him home from work and initiate this conflict Um, rather than find out where he lives and, you know, it be sort of the other way around. So my feeling is that this was not an accident. It actually wasn't a result of road rage, and it was more of a result of something personal. Whether or not Richard was aware of that, um, I I can't say. I'm not leaning one way or the other whether he knew his perpetrator or not. Well, Obviously he didn't because he would have given that information. I'm sure at the end, um, but this this may have been someone either that had a beef with him or was sent to go sort of take care of this conflict on behalf of someone else. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of where I'm at right now, at least you know with the information that you've been providing through the podcast.
0: That's interesting. See, I had theorized that Richard didn't know his killer because when you listen to the 911 call, he isn't describing someone he knows or at least recognizes. Richard says the man wore glasses, and that led me to believe that he didn't know him. In an earlier episode, Mr. Slim Turkey and I were debating this, and I argued if you were the victim of a crime and you were describing an offender that you knew or were at least acquainted with, you would never say it was John and he wore glasses. And that was my take on it.
2: Right. If he actually knew who the perpetrator was, why not just say who it is and how, you know, they know each other or something like that? The the physical description is going to not be important unless the – you know, I know oftentimes dispatchers are trying to get that information. You know, what he look like? How tall was he? What is his hair color? But unless it's in direct response to that line of questioning – Sure, you're just going to get out the information of who it was and what he's driving.
0: Right. The line could have been taken out of context, and we won't know that until the New York State Police released a transcript of the call. But I took it to mean that Richard didn't know the man, or at least he didn't recognize him.
2: Right. And I, I also agree that I don't think he knew him, but I think that whatever the issue was, the conflict was, it was personal, at least to the suspect. And now this could have, you know, we often see this with a lot of the the sort of threat management and um, threat assessment work that psychologists and law enforcement do is that when someone causes harm to someone else, it's usually because they feel wronged or it's over some sort of revenge and they're trying, you know, they, they're emotionally charged from it and need to... Uh, they act out impulsively and or plan it, you know, sometimes it can be very, very deliberately planned. um, But they're writing some sort of wrong in their mind, and or confronting the person. And, um, you know, Richard may have had either zero idea, say it was like one of those sort of benign results of him making a decision at work. Or, you know, did he owe somebody drug money or did he owe someone gambling money or something like that? He may have very well known the reason, but just didn't know the suspect personally. So that's where I stand. That's my theory.
0: I love it. It adds a different perspective to things. Hopefully we not only find out who did it, but we learn of any possible relationship the two may have had.
2: That would be wonderful if, if at least some more information comes out, especially with his family being so young that they could— get some questions answered and have have a little bit of resolve to this. There's there's really no such thing as closure and that word gets tossed around a lot, but a sense of justice finally being done after all these years would be the best outcome to this really tragic situation.
0: I agree. I think at that point, especially for his son Dave, he could put this behind him. Definitely. Dr. Shiloh, if you don't mind, can we change course and talk about your podcast, L.A. Not So Confidential? You said that you and your best friend, Dr. Scott, started the podcast about 18 months ago. Can you tell me about your show and how you guys choose your topics?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. We are in season two right now. So essentially, it is a blend of true crime and us bringing forensic psychology concepts to these true crime stories. And we really felt like that's what was missing out in the true crime podcast world was, you know, there are a lot of sort of um, web sleuths and, you know, people who are sort of just internet investigating things and or just telling some cool stories after doing a Wikipedia search. And we thought, you know, we have a little bit of, expertise in this area. Maybe we can fill in some gaps for people and talk about our work, because people really seem to find our work that we've done with offenders and law enforcement interesting. Um, So let's see how this goes. And with, you know, me, I had the, the law enforcement background, and he has a background in entertainment. He was a casting director for several years. And what we really like is we love the television shows and the movies that depict some of these true crime stories as well as uh, you know a lot of the documentaries and docu series that have been out in the last several years and so we thought we would marry all of that and so usually we'll pick a case and talk about the case talk about some relevant psychological concepts and weave in there a little bit of Um, you know, whatever film or TV show depicts that case. And sometimes it's something that just came out that everyone's talking about, or it's something older, you know, like you mentioned our recent episode on Amanda Knox, that case is, is fairly old. And the documentary came out two years ago. So it's not like it's in everyone's mind right now. However, a couple of our listeners had suggested it, and I think we briefly mentioned it in the episode prior to that. And people jumped on that, and they were like, "Oh, we'd love to know what you think about that case." So we decided to do it. So we'll we'll kind of just go with what's interesting to us. Um, I kind of get on these kicks. I'm working on we're working on our research for our next one right now, and it's sort of relevant, but sort of. I don't want to blow a secret, but it's also. Like, no one has <laughs> looked at this certain individual in terms of true crime. And so, you know, we just have random ideas here and there, or we get ideas from listeners. And, you know, I feel like I, I wish we could do more to kind of stay current with what the trends are but man they change so fast you know and it's a new documentary out and people have been asking us to do one on leaving neverland the michael jackson documentary and you know some other things that are coming out but then by the time we get around to researching it it's like there's a new hot thing so it just depends um we we're never going to run out of material you know it's sort of like uh, job security, because there's always something happening. <laughs> but yeah, we, we we talk very seriously and obviously about very serious topics. But the fact that he and I know each other so well and have sort of this weird sense of humor and quirkiness that, you know, it brings a lightness to it and a little bit of snarkiness every once in a while um, that I think our listeners... Really look forward to and enjoy, but it's been a blast. Um, we're going to be doing the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago, which is this July, and that should be great. We're um, we're making an appearance there. They're trying to get us on a panel discussion as we speak, so um, we're hoping that'll be fun. Get to meet a lot of uh, listeners, especially from you know the the Midwest and East Coast and Canada. So.
0: One of the dynamics that really works for your show is the chemistry you share with Dr. Scott. I mean, your banter is great.
2: Good. Yeah. We – you know, that that was kind of our reason for starting and hoped it would work and it's transitioned pretty well. So – um it's it's fun. You know, he and I it, honestly like each episode could probably be like 4 hours and we just have to like shut each other up. Um but it it's it's been great. It's been really um wonderful for our friendship and we do so much serious work during the day in our jobs and we've you know, ever since grad school, just been so in academia. And I've done a lot of like research and presentations nationally and internationally. And it's just nice to do something fun and creative, but we still know what we're talking about. So it's a really cool creative outlet.
0: Well, it works. It's great.
2: Thank you. And I
0: would recommend it. So if you haven't heard their podcast, it's LA Not So Confidential, available everywhere.
2: Yes. And- if you're looking for us um, on Twitter, we're la not so pod, and on Instagram we're la not so podcast. And we just started a YouTube channel, so if you just look up la not so confidential, uh, we released a promo for the podcast festival. But other than that, you know, you can find us on. We have a website as well, so shouldn't be too hard to find. It's a pretty unique name. Google it. <laughs>
0: Can I ask you, what do you think about all these great documentaries, especially the true crime documentaries?
2: You know, it, they churn out so many and you would think that the quality would suffer, but man, it's hard to find a bad one. I mean, it, they're they're very intriguing. And I was actually thinking about this on the way in because I, I had just finished the Michael Jackson one and there was... Another one that everyone's kind of talking about, abducted in plain sight, that was really crazy. And then I'm, i this morning. I'm on my way in, and I was finishing up um, a podcast, and it was also had like these deep themes and and stories about childhood sexual abuse. And I just thought, oh my god, thank God I'm not working with sex offenders anymore because I would be oversaturating my brain with all of this terrible stuff. And uh, you know, that, that, I think that's just a piece of those of us who love true crime is that we like that stuff interests us. Um, but I think there is oversaturation, and I think we need to make sure that we're balancing it with good stuff in our lives. So we just have to be mindful of how much we're digesting, but there definitely is no shortage of it. And, you know, with other networks, like Amazon and Hulu and, and all of these that have their own documentaries now, um, Sundance Channel, and just tons. Like you can find true crime everywhere. It's the hot thing. They're capitalizing on it. Um, yeah,
0: it's pretty amazing, especially with the amount and the quality of content that Netflix has been putting out just the last couple of years. It's, it's amazing.
2: Yeah, and it's just so easily accessible. And I get it. Like, I I was that teenager, college kid that was totally obsessed. But back then, I just, you should see my home library. It's like every disturbing book that I've collected for the last 20 years, because what could you get other than books, you know, 25 years ago on the topic? I mean, I would be in a bookstore just staring at the true crime section, and now you don't have to leave your house. You just turn on Netflix, so... It's kind of crazy how that's all happened and how it's morphed from reading to, you know, the internet starting up and being on web forums and diving into that to all the ways in which we can consume true crime these days, including, you know, podcasts is kind of the, the newest thing. So we'll see what it is next.
0: Dr. Shiloh, I've had a great time speaking with you today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be on the show and for for adding your perspective to the case. Thank you very much. And I hope we can speak again soon.
2: Well, this was so much fun. I thank you. You know, I just kind of wrote you as a fan and thank you for inviting me on. It it was a blast to just sort of dissect this case a little bit more and, and hopefully offer some insight into con- some concepts for your listeners and you know, this isn't the only unknown murder suspect out there. And so if it gives people something to think, you know, don't go turning in everyone you know who's anxious now, <laughs> or thinking they're a suspect, you can't just diagnose and uh, psychoanalyze everyone in your life. But it it just it, it adds to our, our toolbox of how we critically think about these cases and these true crime stories. So I I hope it was helpful, and I cannot wait to see what's next from Slim Turkey.
0: I want to thank you for listening to the show. In our next episode, the turkey's back, and we'll be examining diffusion of responsibility and how it may have played a role in the Adderson investigation. If you like the show, fatten up the turkey with some positive reviews on Apple Podcasts and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And one last thing, thank you to Justin from Wilder Studios and Productions in L.A. for the seamless recording and production of this episode. For now, I'm Lee Purchase, and this is Slim Turkey. (laughs)
1: trying This twisty road just keeps on winding Well I feel I may have overslept my bounds I probably should rise on my right Now Doctor not feel good, I can seen the feel You seem to think that I'm backsliding Keeps on climbing Well, I feel I may always oh, it's my back I probably should Rizzle my rounds Now, Dr. Back in the